On February 17, 2023, the Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith, appointed a five-panel task force to examine Alberta's response to COVID-19. She also appointed the chairperson of that panel, the Honourable Preston Manning. And so that report was given a mandate to learn the lessons from the response from COVID-19. And part of that mandate was to table the report on November 15. And that's exactly what the panel did under the leadership of the Honourable Preston Manning. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. So I would like to turn to my guest uh, and welcome the Honorable Preston Manning. Welcome. Okay, thank you, David. Thank you. So, Preston, uh, it's um, it's an honor to be able to talk and debrief a little bit about the report. It's an extensive report, um, so I'm I'm really grateful that you could join us. Um, so, the inquiry was, I think, if you had to characterize it, a very much a focused inquiry. Um, so, can you explain um, to us more about the mandate specifically? Well, it it was a legislative. It was a legislative. Uh, panel, David, the terms of references, one long sentence describes it was to look at the, uh, to investigate the legislation that authorized the orders and regulations whereby the province of Alberta responded to the COVID crisis and to propose amendments to that legislation or additional legislation to better prepare the province to handle future emergencies. This was not an overall inquiry into everything the government did with respect to COVID. It was focused on the legislation and, and the report the report has about 103 recommendations in it 40 of them are more in the policy area but over 60 of them are specific recommendations to uh, specific pieces of legislation so um i did have the pleasure of of uh, reading the report and its uh, myriad of appendices as well and uh, i thought it was um quite well done it was is quite fascinating the approach of the inquiry. So, if you had to distill it down, it's almost unfair to do so because I think it has really quite far-reaching uh, consequences. What would you say is the headline that you want people to understand of the inquiry? Well, th there's three categories of recommendations. One is to what what can you do to improve the administrative and regulatory system that was used to respond to the uh, to the crisis. And the main recommendation there is that the Alberta Emergency Management Agency should be assigned the overall responsibility for responding to the, uh, the crisis. Uh, like if it's a health crisis, of course, Health Alberta would be intimately involved in, in developing the responses and in implementing them. But because an emergency may start as health, but if you impose these major response measures that can affect the economy it can affect, have social implications it can have mm -hmm. legal implications so our, our recommendation is that an agency that specifically has the capacity to manage and coordinate the overall approach ought to be given that responsibility so that's and, and there's a whole bunch of subsidiary 
recommendations connection with that. Then the second category has to deal with how do you balance the protection of citizens from the harm that the emergency creates? How do you balance that with the protection of their rights and freedoms during an emergency? Because mm-hmm. a lot of these response measures ha- have negative limiting effects on rights and freedoms. So we have a whole section on that and basically uh, recommend about 20 amendments to the Alberta Bill of Rights to strengthen the protection of rights and freedoms, which are uh, put under stress in an emergency situation. And then the, the third category deals with the Alberta health system itself. Like the, mm-hmm. the experts say your system's got to have surge capacity to respond to a surge in demand, which is what happens when you have a health emergency. And the government's actually done quite a few things. This panel lasted a year. And dur- during the year, of course, the government's already doing some things, particularly to try to address the capacity question. And what we do in the report, we list the things that they're already doing. These are incremental changes. These are not huge mm-hmm. uh, changes. And then we listed another 10 incremental steps that are sort of in the same direction as where they were headed and, and recommended those. So those are, what can you do to improve the surge capacity of the system? What can you do to get better balance between protection from harms and protection from rights and freedoms? And what can you do to beef up the regulatory administrative system so that it uh, operates more effectively? That in in a big nutshell is what <laughs> the report concluded. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it is truly um, uh, peeling the perennial onion here, but it, it, in, in many respects, reading the report, it, it seemed to make sense in the sense that the the response to COVID-19 had profound implications on society and certainly on Alberta, every province. Um, and so it's, it's hard to, in many respects, put one's arms uh, entirely around it. But this seemed to make sense to me in the sense that it was a focused type of inquiry. And I think it's important... For people to understand that so but if you were to step back a little bit i mean you you certainly had a very uh, strategic um, uh, perspective on the impacts of the response to COVID 19. Um, what were some of the highlights of the of the impacts from your perspective i mean in the report i think it, it cites the economic impacts for example how did that impact alberta yes there were major impacts and throughout the report we we try to acknowledge that a lot of people suffered because of this there was mm-hmm. the health Indeed. there was the health impact 5500 uh albertans died uh, either directly or indirectly as a result of covid and th- these are tragedies for these families that the health the doctors the nurses the mm-hmm. health workers were under strain for months and months and months partly because we didn't have the capacity to handle a, a surge in demand the uh, the teachers uh, were asked in two weeks to shift from in-school training to online yeah. at-home training which is a huge uh, deal so there, there, there's a, lo- a lot of uh, suffering and d- dislocation and we try to make the point that the, the whole point of these recommendations is to try to ensure that these people don't have to go through that kind of suffering again. Exactly. But to, to look at the actual impacts, the, uh, the COVID response measures that called for social distancing and locking down uh, portions of the economy, uh, th- they resulted in an 8% contraction of the Alberta economy. The Alberta economy is a $300 billion a GDP uh, economy. So an 8% contraction is $24 billion worth of 
damage to your economy. Losses in revenue, losses in wages, losses in taxes, losses in everything. I mean, that's a huge uh, impact uh, to $24 billion negative impact. And then Alberta has a a labor force of about 2 million full-time jobs. The unemployment rate in Alberta at the peak of COVID spiked from about 7 or 8% prior Mm -hmm. to COVID to over 15% during COVID, the highest unemployment levels in Alberta since the Depression. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have 2 million full-time jobs, a 7% uh, spike in unemployment means 140,000 jobs negatively affected, and some of them you know, eliminated uh, temporarily, some some of them eliminated uh, completely. So th- these are huge impacts. And uh, our, our report tries to get at what can you do to make sure that sort of thing never happens again. And one of the recommendations to the what the emergency management agency could do if it's coordinating the whole thing is to do impact assessments, including preliminary impact assessments mm-hmm. before you implement the, the response measure. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could say, look, if we shut down the economy, what is that going to do? You, you don't have all the data to do it, but at least ask the question and, and getting some kind of answer is better than no answer. Because, you know, Alberta has models where the economists can tell you, well, if you lock it down, if you contract the economy 4%, here, here's... Mm-hmm. Here's what the impact employment impacts will be. Here's where they will be, because these will not fall uh, equally on the public sector and the private sector. So, uh, so th- that's the economic impacts. And then on the, the one of the other big impact impacts was the uh, order to close the schools, to shut down mm-hmm. the schools, particularly in March 2020. The schools in Alberta were shut down from March 2020 to the end of that school year. Uh, we calculate this affected uh, 1.6 to 1.8 million Albertans. You have, you have 760,000 school children in Alberta from the ages of 6 to uh, 18. You have 55,000 teachers. You have a, a couple of hundred thousand of education workers and supporters in the, the school uh, system. And then when you shift from... Uh, in-school training to at-home online training, somebody's got to supervise that. And who is it? It's the parent, the grandparents, people were rounding up their relatives to do it. And and the strain that put on families where both parents are working mm-hmm. and, and whether they could even do it with many low-income homes or homes that were under stress for other reasons, this is a huge impact. And, and one of the conclusions that we came to is that you should really take off the table the idea of school closures as a response to a public emergency, except uh-huh. under very unusual circumstances. If there was a virus that hit kids between the age of five and 18, maybe you'd have to do that. But do not consider that as a as an option, except under very unusual circumstances. And we... Uh, we, we point out that statutes in Alberta, and this is true in other provinces, like the Education Act, it, it never envisioned a, a province-wide lockdown of the schools. The, 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 the framers of that act never envisioned that. In fact, the, the, the powers of the state under that act are to make you go to school. If you don't go to school, the government will come after you. The idea that the government's going to come after you if you do go to yeah. school is completely foreign to the, the statute. And so we've recommended some... Uh, uh, amendments to the Alberta Education Act to 
to take into account how to handle this sort of thing in the future. Yeah, no, it was, it was actually a very um, uh, powerful um, uh, stating of that kind of impact. And you, you even show a diagram, I believe, in the appendix about the so-called um, third bucket kids that were um, kind of caught between being in school, namely like one other bucket that's referred to, and those online, and those in between, namely the, the children. I mean, that, it's yeah. really quite a profound impact on children. Well, one of the experts, uh, he was a consultant to our panel. He wasn't a member of the panel. Is Irvin Student, who's a, yeah. studied this backwards and forwards in a whole bunch of other countries, not just Canada. And, and he's very alarmed about this third bucket. I mean, it's not very large in Canada. I mean, there's the people that, that, that got the in-school training there, there's the and went back to it when the crisis was over. There's the people that were able to function fairly well on the uh, online at-home training. But then there's a bunch of kids that just weren't, weren't in either. And in, in some countries, th these are, numbers are absolutely huge. These people have just dropped out of the system. They they didn't come back to school when school was authorized. They, they never were hooked into the online training. And some of those children could, could be damaged for life. What these experts point out is that the, the two major negative consequences of school lockdown, one is there's learning loss. Mm -hmm. You know, and this is measurable. And the Alberta government recognized that, that the education department here is spending uh, over a hundred million dollars trying to address learning loss, assigning additional people to schools to to try to beef that up. There are things you can do about that. But the the other category of loss is what they call socialization mm -hmm. loss. Like like I've talked to grade three teachers who say she's got eight year old kids that behave like five year olds. Because they never that the what children pick up in those early early years kindergarten grade one and two it's not just the ABCs and the one two threes uh -huh. they're learning how to interact with other people with other children and there's a whole cohort that missed that and then and and uh, how how to repair that is not an easy uh, thing and there's a, another category that ones that were just entering into their teens and and you all know if anybody's got children <laughs> the teenagers are uh, can be a rocky period under any circumstances mm -hmm. and and children in that category very much value their friends and their social relationships yes. that's absolutely crucial and if that's disrupted th that can cause real mental stress uh, and effects that last for years so all of this to say is that if we can figure out any way to avoid those kinds of impacts uh -huh. in the future, that that's beneficial, particularly going forward. No, I, I think that's a very humbling uh, summation, uh, Preston, of, of, again, the profound decisions that were made that impacted society in so many levels. So in many ways, you're really trying to uh, work at a strategy of prevention. At least this is part of what I picked up from the many... Um, recommendations being made. It, 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 so in many ways, this is a, an incredible beginning to um, uh, a whole larger or myriad set of issues that we'll have to continue to deal with over the next several years, won't we? Oh, yes. Now, we should make clear that our recommendations pertain only to a situation where the, the government has declared a province-wide public emergency. Like mm -hmm. We're not talking about local emergencies. A lot of the existing statutes, the Public Health Act, the Education Act, the 
Bill of Rights are, are perfectly fine in dealing with a, a local a localized emergency that's very short mm-hmm. and temporary. These recommendations pertain to uh, the fairly rare occasion of a province-wide public emergency. Ho- hopefully, you don't get into these more than two or three times a decade. Mm-hmm. But uh, a province-wide emergency that affects everybody is uh, a pretty big deal. It really is. So a number of your recommendations seem to make uh, really kind of common sense recommendations on how to improve emergency management in Alberta. And one of the things that I found intriguing is that you very much uh, emphasize the role of elected officials uh, in an emergency and the approach that that needs to be taken. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I think you want to establish who's ultimately responsible for what's done or, or not done. And our view is that ultimately it's the elected officials. These are the only people that the public can hold accountable in any way, mm-hmm. shape, or form in, in a d- democracy. So mm-hmm. we make that clear in this section on leading the response that at the end of the day, the, the political people should uh, approve the uh, or disapprove the orders and regulations that the uh, their officials put forward and be held accountable for what's done. Now, now what this one of the changes in the statute that this requires, Alberta, under its Public Health Act, has a Section 29. Other provinces have it like this, too. Again, n- never envisioning a province-wide emergency. And, mm-hmm. and this gave the exclusive power to make orders and regulations to deal with a local emergency to the chief medical officer of health. And so if there's a, an outbreak of something in the Fort McMurray Hospital or, or in Red Deer or someplace, of, of course, the chief medical officer uh, c- can deal with it, has the power to deal with it, doesn't have to go and talk to the cabinet and half a dozen departments, just go and deal with it. But mm-hmm. that section, when there's a province-wide public emergency, we argue that that's when the, whoever the officials are should get the approval of some elected people for their mm-hmm. uh, statute. And, and there are other provincial, the, the Manitoba Public Health Act has a section, I can't remember the number, but that just is quite explicit. It just says the medical officer of health has to get the approval of, in their case, the minister for any mm-hmm. order or regulation. And the Alberta government just introduced a, a few weeks ago a Bill 6, which basically amends the Alberta Public Health Act to do the same thing as the uh, as the Manitoba Act. Mm-hmm. So just uh, moving to, to some other important topics, including uh, what you mentioned as part of the mandate was dealing with uh, capacity building in the healthcare system. So, you know, it's quite remarkable. I heard this in so many jurisdictions. Um, uh, I remember being in London, England, where they said, let's protect the national healthcare service. So we heard that refrain in its various forms across Canada all the time, including in Alberta, let's protect our healthcare system. And I think people would kind of I think many of us were kind of scratching our heads saying, well, we're spending uh, a tremendous amount of public funds on healthcare, And you mean to say we only have um, what it seemed like a, a fairly modest set of healthcare beds. And it seemed like we were overwhelmed and we were locking down society to protect a, um, a system. So what, what was your take on that? And what were the recommendations then to, try to ensure that we're not in this situation. We put forward some incremental 
changes along the line of what the government's already doing. You can expand the use of registered nurses. You can expand the use of uh, what they called licensed practical nurses, which is another category who could do more things. You could expand the role of pharmacists in particularly to meet this surge demand. We, we list a number of these things. These are not big sweeping changes, but they're mm-hmm. things that that could be done. The increase, don't they? Yes, or, or tel- telemedicine. I mean, that there was quite a boost to that. Now it has its downside too. You can have quackery and everything else, but you, there's a increased use of t- telemedicine and virtual uh, consultation. So we, we list all these things. The the, the one uh, measure that gets a little bit at what you're talking about at the beginning, we we recommend that in 2024 the Alberta government be given a list, and we have these lists already, of 30, 40 countries whose healthcare systems outperform ours Hmm. on virtually every measure. Uh Doctors per thousand, ICUs per thousand, length of waiting lines, there's seven or eight indicators. The only one where we're at the top is on cost per per Uh patient. And what we're saying, we'll give the government this list and say, you pick out of this list four countries, say, that that all outperform us on these indicators at lower cost. And then let's invite from those countries people to tell us two things. One is what's the distinctive characteristics of their system that Mm -hmm. enables it to outperform ours? And the second thing is how did you get to that system from where you were? Because a lot of them had systems not unlike ours 25 or 30 years ago, particularly legislative. How did you have to change the law mm-hmm. to get to wherever you are now? And and the idea is you, the politicians, the, the healthcare uh, officials, uh, whatever, can come to this conference, but any pre, you don't have to commit to anything except to listen to these people and then try to come to a judgment afterwards. Are there any of these provisions that we ought to mm-hmm. adopt? Uh, and uh, are, are there any of these changes in the law that they use to get to where they are now that we ought to consider? Mm-hmm. Now, now, whether the government accepts that r- recommendation or not, we don't know right now, but that's our one way. And that way you're not having systemic change being advocated by conservatives or by mm-hmm. NDP or liberals. or the, the, the adv- There's no advocacy there. This is Whatever we're being told is by people that are running systems that perform better than ours. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, hopefully that there's going to be some uh, positive uh, benefits from that. Yeah. Well, I was struck by, dare I say, the common sense to that kind of recommendation. Um, because during a crisis like this, those kinds of weaknesses are exposed. There's lessons to be learned. So how do we uh, build that kind of capacity? So it made a lot of sense. Um, and, and, and dare I say, internationally, there's so many rich examples, and you know them well, Preston, um, like France or Germany or, or Sweden that we can draw from. Um, well, just on that point, David, at one point, the panel was going to recommend for countries. Oh. Our, our panelists are, are, are well versed on this. And then we decided not, not to do that. Not even to do that, to say to the the government and the legislature, we'll give you a list of 35, 40 countries and you pick them up. Because what's important is that that the, the legislators have confidence in, well, we picked the right countries. If we recommend mm-hmm. it to them, well, somebody will say, well, it shouldn't have been that. So we even backed off of that. All, all we suggest is that that 
there are other people who are doing it better than us and not mm-hmm. spending as much money. Surely yeah. we can learn, learn something from that. Surely we can learn. Surely. Yeah. So speaking of um, learning, um, I was also struck by your recommendations about rights and freedoms. Obviously, there's always balances between uh, protecting uh, people. and, and um, But there were a lot of arguably incredibly, um, dare I say, almost a authoritarian impacts on people like from uh, I mean you could shop at Walmart but you couldn't go to church I mean there's just a whole list of them so how did you what kind of recommendations did you make there to deal with that reality of those impacts on our right you could argue that there's violations of the charter the the, the charter rights and freedoms yeah but our, our terms of reference this is a provincial inquiry we're not at liberty to recommend changes to the charter and uh, right. you know the, not the federal government the charter is an enormously complex uh, process but what we could do is say strengthen the alberta bill of rights which defines the rights and freedoms with uh, respect to alberta and which every statute in alberta is supposed to comply with and we have about 20 recommendations there uh, some of the main ones being just the right to informed medical consent Mm-hmm. This doesn't interfere with the government saying this is what should be done. But if you're, you have the final choice as to whether you consent to that uh, medical procedure or not. And uh, we, we also, in Alberta, there's two statutes: the um, Employment Standards Code, which governs relations between employees and employers. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that came up it was raised mainly by the unions: was what what if we have a employee who has a different view on the the government response measures than their employer and their employer says well if you don't comply i'll 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 fire you or i'll suspend you or whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, is that not a violation of the members rights to freedom of expression and so we've beefed that up the protection of the freedom of expression The, the same question comes up the other statute is the Health Professions Act. Like, in terms of regulations, there's four classes of regulations. There's orders in council that have to get through the cabinet. There's ministerial orders that at least have to have the approval of one elected officials. There are just regulations. There's all kinds of statutes. Halfway, you go halfway through them. The, the lieutenant governor in council is empowered to make regulations or to delegate that regulation power. And then there's a fourth murky category where the government has delegated regulatory power to third parties, like the College of Physicians and Surgeons or the professional colleges of the various uh, health disciplines. And the question came up there, what if a member has a view on the response to COVID that's fundamentally different than the, the government or, or the college? Can, can the college censor them or take away their membership or do whatever? And uh, we tried to propose an amendment. These are modest amendments, but to strengthen the freedom of expression under those circumstances. And some of the feedback we've already get back, got back on the report is people say, well, if you give people too much freedom, won't they uh, abuse it? You'll have all kinds of crackpots out there saying all kinds of ridiculous hmm. things and people don't know uh, who, who to believe and people will go have half cocked. And uh, so our response to that is to recognize that can happen. 
but and I, I've been on this for years, long before I was on this panel. Whenever you strengthen rights, you should say what's the duty that goes along with the right. Indeed, that yes. Strengthen the right, but there's a duty to exercise it responsibly. And you could actually put sections into the statutes saying we're going to expand your rights, but there's a, a duty that accompanies this. And so that if it gets into court, the question is not just did you exercise your right, but did you exercise your duty to exercise it responsibly? And that's partly our answer wow. to that legitimate concern that, it, well, if you just let people do whatever they want, some, some people will abuse it. Well, I, I certainly did notice that um, series of recommendations, and I think it's admirable that you were, dare I say, trying to look at the larger issues around how to renew democracy, how to renew um, the rights and freedoms within the provincial context. Uh, is that a fair comment, uh, Preston? Oh, yeah. And again, I know I'm repeating myself, in the context of a province-wide public emergency. That That's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the overall because it's those big emergencies that actually, you know, force the government to consider: do we have to limit rights and freedoms mm -hmm. because of the nature of this emergency? Exactly. And so there's an increased stress on the exercise of rights and freedoms, and we say you should recognize that and try to increase the protection at the same time. Indeed. So, um, speaking of of decision making, I I noticed the uh, chapter on. Uh, bringing science uh, to bear in public policy. And I thought that was quite a, a fascinating descriptor. I think it's uh, it's well said, and, and certainly knowing you, uh, Preston, that didn't surprise me, but it was it was interesting to see that within this inquiry that that's a very important uh, topic. So what do you mean by bringing science into public policy? Well, first of all, I say my own science background. I actually started out in physics at university, but but I couldn't mm -hmm. handle the math. So I went into economics where you can make the math work by changing the assumptions. Right. And then, then I went into politics and people say, well, you don't even consider the math. So, but uh, th this bringing science to bear, uh, what we end up recommending there, because science has a major role to play in trying to figure out how to respond to these uh, emergencies, we recommend that the um, a senior science officer be appointed to this Alberta Emergency Management Agency that's going to have the overall coordinating thing. And that that person's responsibility is to develop and maintain an inventory, a multidisciplinary inventory of advice and science advisors mm -hmm. that the government can draw upon in any future emergency. And we stress the multidiscipline in nature because what happens like in the COVID case, it starts out as a health emergency and you immediately get health experts together. That makes perfect sense. But when the response measures include effects on the economy, on the social, mm -hmm. uh, mental health, on addictions, on uh, burden on the courts and everything else, you need a much broader expertise. Like it wouldn't be fair to go to the chief medical officer of health when she's or he's yeah. proposing economic lockdown measures and say, well, now, do you know what the Alberta GDP is? And, and do you know what, what that will do on the employment level? And do you know how the employment in Alberta is split between the public and private sector? No. You know, you're talking to a, a doctor, a medical person, mm -hmm. and they would legitimately say, like, what are you asking me for? I'm a, mm -hmm. I'm a health person. I'm a medical person. Don't. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we, we propose this 
multidisciplinary inventory so that you've got the government can, and the officials can draw upon a, uh-huh. a big pool of science in order to come up with the best measures possible. Well, I was certainly struck by that because, uh, you know, again, strategically, how do we learn from this and anchor public decision making? I mean, these types of, of high stress situations where it's the perception of safety and it's driven by, I mean, one of the things that struck me about the, the COVID um, uh, issues is that it was driven by almost a, a never-ending drumbeat of fear. And and fear does horrible things in decision-making when you should be calm and rational. And I know it's difficult, but that's part of good emergency management is being able to keep a, a clear mind and, and following that plan. So I think grounding things in science as you're, as you're recommending really helps move um, the needle in terms of better decision-making because um, is that what you're trying to do? On that, David, one of the interesting internal discussions we had was uh, like some of these officials will, will tell you, and they've got some logic behind it, that when you're telling the public to do something, if you indicate there's uncertainty about it, you you reduce the chance of compliance. There's an huh. old saying, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who will prepare themselves for battle? Indeed. So there's yeah. an argument. That we, we, we can't, you know, if you talk to those people privately, say, yes, this isn't 100% sure, but it's just the best we can know. But if, if we acknowledge that publicly, isn't it going to reduce the chance of compliance? Uh, on the other hand, uh, we, we, we argued among ourselves, isn't transparency, utter transparency necessary to have confidence in who's ever issuing the order? And where's the balance between not giving an uncertain sound and yet being transparent? But we, we ended up coming down on the side of transparency is better mm-hmm. than, than, than hedging your bets. That If there's uncertainty about what you're saying, then acknowledge that. Say, look, like your, your doctor will do that. Say, look, we don't know 100% yeah. what's the best way for you, but th- this is my best judgment. And it may not, I may have to change my diagnosis down, down mm-hmm. the road or something else may come up. We, we ended up concluding you're, you're better to be transparent like that and acknowledge your uncertainty than to try to hide it by implying that, and, and you know, the, the, the public got pretty skeptical on this thing because the, the 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 person on the street, what they heard, the signals. This is more from the federal government to start with, but then mm-hmm. from the provinces. They heard first of all, if if you get vaccinated, you won't get COVID. That's what mm-hmm. they heard at the beginning. That they, it wasn't that simple from the communicator standpoint. But that's what people. It's what people hear, not what you say. And then a little while later, they're saying, well, if you get vaccinated twice, you won't get COVID. Mm-hmm. And then a little while later, it was, well, if, if you, you won't get COVID if you get vaccinated twice and get a booster. Uh, and then a little while later, well, you, you may get vaccinated twice and have a booster and still get COVID, but the symptoms will be different. Exactly. Now, 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 you know, the, the, the poor guy in the street says, uh, like, I, I'm not sure what to believe. And uh, uh, why didn't you tell me there was uncertainty with respect to that first message? And then I might not be as as distraught when the second and the third messages come along. So that, that's a very interesting subject to debate. <laughs> no, and, and I, I commend the inquiry for really attempting to, to give some incisive recommendations around these issues so the grounded 
grounding things in science, but also within humble debate in the sense that as this uh, crisis unfolded, we know that there were raging debates, but it's almost like there was an assertion by so many that, well, no, you can't debate this. I mean, we know about the example of Sweden. We know that the, the results were some, certainly the data that we see has, has been really quite stunning in terms of the positive nature. So, um, yeah, we, we, I think those recommendations are, are, are very important to recognize as trying to lead to better decisions and outcomes for people. Now, now, one of the questions that's come back to us in that section, we say that you should base, the, the, to the extent you can, these sciences, the your responses on science-based information and other categories of information. Of course, immediately some of the critics jump on, now what are you talking about there? Well, yeah. one of the main things we're talking about there is indigenous. Indigenous people have a different yeah. view on what is appropriate medical mm -hmm. treatment. This is not based on some uh, thing done in a laboratory and published mm -hmm. in the scientific literature. Th th this wisdom comes from cultural uh, backgrounds, uh, the, and we're saying you shouldn't rule that out, that, that those people should be entitled to submit their evidence. It's not scientific evidence in the classical sense, but it's still evidence worth taking into account, particularly if there are people that believe these things, you know. Indeed. I also uh, noted your recognition about explicit protection of academic and, and professional freedom, uh, just to reinforce that. So um, why did you make that kind of explicit recommendation? Well, because this, this Health Professions Act in Alberta, and there's similar statutes in other uh, provinces, it gives this regulatory power to these colleges, like the College of Physicians and Surgeons. In Alberta, there's a 29 of these covering all the different health professions. And uh, the, the, those uh, uh, colleges ha have the right to censor you or to, uh, if you're a member, if you do something that they mm -hmm. think is, is irresponsible. And so we, we tried to strengthen the protection of members of those associations to freedom of expression uh, if they, uh, particularly when they may disagree with the college or they may disagree with the, with the government. And uh, we, we have recommendations for, they're basically amendments to the Health Professions Act to, mm -hmm. to do that. And, and one of the qualifications, in fact, in touching a number of these statutes is we, one of the first things we say is sometimes you have to clarify the definitions Mm -hmm. like, what do you mean in law by a province-wide public emergency? Exactly what do we mean by that? Can we spell mm -hmm. it out in law? What, what do you mean by professional conduct or unprofessional content, co conduct in the context of the Health Professions Act? And particularly, what do these terms mean during a public emergency? Maybe they, they mean one thing when it's under normal conditions, but maybe they mean another thing when you're under the stress of a... So th this is advice to legislators. Often, if you look at statutes, the, the first section is a section on definitions. What do we mean by this and that? Mm -hmm. And in some cases, we're, we're saying we should sharpen up our definitions while we're at it. Well said. So clarity is important on those definitions. Um, so as an observation, I, I mean, I, I think across the country, I mean, a lot of these issues are hard to um, perhaps uh, launch an inquiry. It's hard for many decision makers perhaps to step back and say, we want to actually reflect on the, the good decisions that we made, but also the mistakes that we made. 
Um, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that Alberta's doing this inquiry. Um, it is it is focused, but uh, I'm not aware of other provinces doing this. I know that citizens have come forward, the National Citizens Inquiry that you're so familiar with. Um, um, so is is there a particular reason why you think the Alberta government has taken the leadership? If, if uh... well, well, I think they should be given credit for it, uh, David. And this is this credit goes to the the premier, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Premier Smith. As I say, Alberta is the only jurisdiction that has launched any kind of an investigation. Now, this is a fairly narrow one, as I mentioned at the mm-hmm. beginning. It's focused on legislation, yeah. but they're the only jurisdiction that's done this and uh, i think they should get credit for this and 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 we would argue it's possible to do these invocations what so many people are afraid of is that these things will turn into a witch hunt Mm. blaming somebody accusing them of all sorts of things that that's there's no point in our view doing that Mm -hmm. like the whole point in this is to try to learn the lessons that would better equip the province for the, the next emergency, and that all these people that suffered through this whole thing, whether it was health-wise, economically-wise, work-wise, stress-wise, rights-wise, that, that they're not put through that again, or at least their children aren't put through it again. No, and indeed. I, I guess we're trying to prove you can have these investigations without them turning into a, a, a witch hunt, and uh, they can be positive, not negative. Indeed. And and let's hope that um, other uh, leaders across the country, whether they're uh, the prime minister, uh, premiers or uh, mayors or every level of government, uh, would use this as an opportunity to learn and, and the, the so-called lessons. I think that's well said. Now, if, if we look at the next stage of this process, you've tabled the inquiry report. Um, where does it go from here? Well, the, the usual response to these things by government is to say thank you for the report. There's obviously some recommendations in here that we, we can agree with and proceed with. There's going to be some recommendations in here that we'd have to study more and investigate more before we did anything. And there'll be some recommendations that we, we see where you think we should go, but we've chosen to go a different direction. Those are the three options that a government has, and that we expect that's what the options that the government of Alberta s- sees. If they want to proceed with these amendments, and and I've said to a number of people, this report is not some academic discussion paper. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just done so that it would get some publicity for a few weeks and be the subject of a conference next year and so forth. No, this Mm -hmm. is aimed at getting amendments to the floor of the Alberta legislature Mm -hmm. and a vote on do we or do we not do this. And so hopefully if the government decides to proceed with some of these recommendations, uh, they'll be brought before the spring. The, the, the legislature is sitting, not not this week, but uh, is sitting the next couple of weeks. That's too soon to bring these amendments forward. But ho- hopefully uh, whatever they agree to proceed with, the amendments can be brought to the legislature at the spring session. Indeed. So it's not over yet. So what can citizens do? I know that uh, during the inquiry you had uh, quite a bit of involvement of uh, people of all walks of life, including associations as well. Um, how could citizens get involved in the stage that we're at now? Well, the first thing would be to read the report. We, actually, when this was set up, there was just one simple question put on the government's website. Uh, what changes, if any, would you suggest be made in the laws of Alberta to cope uh-huh. with future public emergencies? And and what the feedback to that question indicated uh, uh, 
a third of 40% of people didn't even answer the question. And, and a lot of the other people said, we, we've no idea what the laws were that governed the response, which is legitimate. And so our, our report is basically a big explanation of these are the laws that governed what was done. The Alberta Bill of Rights, the Alberta Public Health Act, the Emergency Management Act. There's about five mm-hmm. other statutes. These are the laws. And this is the context and how they apply. So, so now people could read that report and respond to that question a lot better than when it was just stuck out there as an independent question. So the, the first thing that we'd suggest to people, if they're concerned about this, is to, uh, to read the report. And then this news release that went out, uh, it summarizes some of the recommendations. But the end of it, there's a thing, click here if you want to read the report. And Mm -hmm. click here if you want to read the appendices. And most important, if you have a question or a suggestion or a recommendation, here's the email address to send that to. Very good. That's the minimal thing people can do. And and I know there's a lot of people who say, I just want to forget about this (laughs) Thing. And I, I understand that sentiment, but uh, mm-hmm. m- my point is an awful lot of people suffered going through this. Don't we owe it to them to figure out what can we learn from this so it doesn't happen again? We're not trying to put people through the ringer again, but we're trying to get what there, there's benefits from what people went through. And let's find what those benefits are. Well, well said. Uh, the Honorable Preston Manning, thank you so much for joining us today for this discussion and for your leadership as chair of this inquiry about Alberta's response to COVID-19. When well, well we, we, had a, we had a lot of help, David. Like I, I'm the chair of it, but we, we have these other uh, people that were v- very involved that were on the panel. They're listed in the report. And then we had a number of consultants that uh, uh, provided some of those appendices. Some of these are papers, 75, 80 pages, pages a lot we had to condense them down. So while it was an honor for me to chair the panel, there was an awful lot of other people that contributed to it. Yeah. Indeed. So thank you so much for your hard work and leadership and for the entire team. And uh, we appreciate that uh, Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith took the leadership initiative to appoint the inquiry. Uh, When she appointed the inquiry, she said, there are lessons to be learned from the management of Alberta's response. So uh, let's embrace those lessons as we build a, a not only a better province in Alberta, but also um, we are hopeful that others are watching this, whether they are the prime minister, uh, other premiers, or other uh, leaders of local government. Uh, this can be an opportunity for our country to move forward uh, and, again, uh, learn these lessons. Thank you so much for joining us, Preston Manning. Okay, thank you, David. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.